0: Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to our webinar on institutional engagement with the cryptocurrency markets. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and it's my privilege to moderate our discussion today. Well, it's been quite a journey since the cryptocurrency bust back in 2018. Back then, the market was valued at less than $130 billion. Today, it's worth $1.75 trillion. The market cap of Bitcoin alone has increased more than tenfold in the last 12 months alone. Now, there's obviously more than one reason for that, but an important factor has been growing institutional interest in the asset class. Asset managers, wealth managers, private banks, corporate treasurers are all investing. The crypto is still a volatile market in terms of price and an immature market in terms of infrastructure, both of which make it a lot easier to lose money than it is in the traditional markets. Now to help institutional investors find a safe way into the cryptocurrency markets, I'm joined by three CEOs who've joined forces to provide exactly that safe path. Alex Batten is CEO of Trustology, the London-based provider of cryptocurrency safekeeping and digital asset servicing services for institutional investors, corporate and private clients active in cryptocurrency and digital asset markets. Lars Holst is CEO of GCX, the London headquartered brokerage platform for brokers, managers of cryptocurrency funds and other professional traders and trading houses that wish to trade cryptocurrencies as well as traditional assets. Rosario Ingagiola is founder and CEO of Basonic, the San Francisco-based company which aims to eliminate counterparty credit and settlement risk for institutional investors in cryptocurrencies. Now in addition to our panellists, we do of course also have you, our audience, and we want your questions and we want your comments. So send them and keep sending them throughout the discussion via the Q&A functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. We will not be saving them up to the end but answer them as we go along. So you will be, if you choose to be, an integral part of this discussion. Now we're gonna begin by establishing what exactly are the obstacles that institutional investors face in accessing uh, the digital asset markets. And the first is obviously price discovery or liquidity, a better way of putting it. Where do you find liquidity? Exchanges seem the obvious place to look, but there are alternatives such as uh, CFDs. Lars, perhaps I could begin with you. Could you talk us through the options that uh, institutional investors face in terms of searching for liquidity in these new markets?
2: Yeah, sure, Dominic. Uh, Thanks for uh, letting me participate today. Uh, So unlike traditional markets, it's uh, much more fragmented, and I guess in the bigger picture, uh still relatively small uh, and there's no standardization in in the way we co- uh, contract you know the legal framework with how we deal with each other uh, no ISTAs, you know no uh, prime brokerage structure as of yet uh, so it, it's fragmented and uh, you know even very very intelligent people that's been in the market for many years they still tell me you know how do we actually get started uh, so but liquidity sources uh you know rosario of course has has a lot of uh, connectivity to liquidity but uh, yeah you have exchanges uh, and then you have a lot of dedicated market makers and and i guess as a backup you could also take some some liquidity from from uh, the cme Uh, so but i think in in summary pretty fragmented Uh, you need to know where to look if you want to go outside the the biggest exchanges um And, you know, just be careful with how uh, you interact and, and, you know, safety and uh, how you contract with with them.
1: You say it's fragmented. There are hundreds of exchanges, uh, Lars, and institutions are coming out of a a background where, you know, there's like a handful of exchanges, even in in major markets. They're entering a market which came out of bulletin boards and it's got this 24-7 trading structure. They're brought up in a best execution uh uh, world which applies here as well um and they're used to things like liquidity aggregation tools as well so it it is it is a very weird environment if you're used to the as you said uh the traditional markets what what's the the comfort you can offer them
2: so so i I guess what we have done is you know sourcing uh liquidity from multiple venues uh trying to eliminate uh, a bit of the headache Uh, you deal with the regulated counterparty uh, FCA regulated that is of course we have to be more precise these days Uh, and but broadly you know crypto spot is an unregulated activity like uh, foreign exchange spot uh, has been throughout the years and and still is to a large extent Uh, so crypto spot is not bound by uh, you know best execution rules and, and you know RTS 27, RTS 28, uh, without getting too technical, uh, and it's not governed by uh, standardized documentation like like an ISTA or, or CSA or similar. So it is, you know, more done on a, on a bilateral basis. Uh, but you know, we've gone through a lot of the pain points, doing liquidity connectivity and, and setting up some from legal frameworks with a number of, of counterparties and, and exchanges. But it's, you know, it, it just takes time uh, and, and it's probably capital intensive because there's no central clearer as, as we used to from, from the traditional market. Um, and, and that's really the pain points uh, that we have uh, solved uh, in, in close cooperation, of course, with uh, Rosario and, and Alex from Bosonic and, and uh, Trustology.
1: Now, now Rosario, um, as Lars has just said, there is no central counterparty clearinghouse to, to take away the counterparty um, risk here. And um, as he also said, right at the outset, there are no prime brokers either. And there are reasons why institutional investors like prime brokers and like central counterparty clearinghouse. They, they use them for a reason. Um, how can they work in these markets without those institutions?
0: I think it's, well, it's pretty tough. I mean, and the reason why they like uh, central counterparties and, and prime brokerage is because the core function of those things is to provide that credit intermediation piece. So I think there's a lot of confusion in the crypto space where people think prime brokerage means... Uh, maybe it means lending. They think it means liquidity aggregation. Um, but really, those things are sort of supported by that—that that the core function, which is the credit intermediation piece. And that's basically, you know, in, in a traditional market like FX, it's a it's a major bank stepping in with their balance sheet and essentially becoming the counterparty uh, to to all of the participants. And and so obviously, that does not exist in the digital space. Uh, what we at Basonic have tried to do um, and I think and I think done a pretty good job at is use pure technology to, to solve that problem uh, where people can basically hold their assets at uh, an, an independent custodian like trustology uh, and they can transact with with any other counterparty, uh, for example GCX, um, the liquidity that they have without actually having to take any counterparty credit or have any settlement risk uh, by virtue of how the technology is implemented.
1: Alex, uh, you just heard Rosario um, say that his model allows people to work with the, the custodian they choose. Now, one of the things that put off institutional investors in the early days of this market was that uh, they were having to deal with uh, exchanges in particular who were also who acting as the custodian. There was an obvious conflict of interest there. Uh, so what's, what, what do you say to institutional clients who are approaching this market in a rather nervous frame of mind for the first time about you know, who's gonna be looking after my stuff uh, how do you reassure them?
3: Sure. I mean, I guess one of the constant questions was around regulation. <clears throat> you know, first of all, from money laundering point of view, uh, through to uh, kind of what does custody actually mean in crypto? What does liability look like? Um, because, you know, the traditional uh, custody is you give somebody their assets, they service those assets, they do record keeping, uh, and the liabilities on the custodian, and then all the servicing is done by the custodian. In the crypto space, it doesn't work that way. In reality, what you're doing is clustering assets uh, that are keys, not the assets themselves, because everything is protected. You know, you're no longer doing record keeping, that's the blockchain. Um, so we saw early custodians adopt old fashioned model where You send your assets to an omnibus key uh, to the custodian, and then um, the only utility you can extract out of the assets with the custodian is the security. But you are limiting yourself to all the other opportunities that decentralized finance brings along. We're now starting to see us uh, as, as an example and other competitors of ours offering solutions which mix the old and the new. So we custody the keys, and therefore, they're, uh, by definition, the assets protected by those keys, but will have maximum flexibility of what you do with those assets, whether that's uh, clearing and netting uh, on Basonic, whether it's uh, kind of automated market making uh, on DeFi with Uniswap, uh, whether you're taking liquidity from decentralized pools or from centralized counterparties, we're trying to basically bridge all those scenarios. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, innovation going forward, mixing centralized, decentralized services together, but in a regulated uh, manner. So this is what we bring. We bring regulation. We bring security around keys. We make sure that there are adequate judiciary and custodial controls, which is what you need. And we facilitate uh, reporting in terms of, you know, NAVs and all the other stuff to feed into fund administration. So all those functions that you would expect a custodian or a subcustodian to facilitate, uh, we're starting to bring into the crypto space with a caveat that in the crypto space, not only are you dealing with centralized counterparties, but you're actually starting to deal with decentralized counterparties like uh, DeFi liquidity pools. And that takes a little while for people to get their head around, but this is gonna be the ongoing reality of the crypto space. Um, so I think it's important to be able to deal with both.
1: as you point out, one of the things traditional custodians do is service the assets as well as safe, keep them. And is this what's going on in DeFi must be increasing the need for asset servicing. No, the opposite, The,
3: the whole point of, uh, blockchain is that you incorporate the business logic of assets inside the asset itself. Yeah. It's what I call inversion of control. The old world, you had dumb, dumb records and then you relied on the parameter of intermediaries to um, service them and do the right things. In fact, on blockchain, you can re- inverse all of that. You put in the business logic into the asset class and the supporting protocols so that you're no longer relying on intermediaries always uh, to save up from a regulatory point of view or from a business rule point of view. Uh, the assets are self-protecting and self-servicing. And I think this is the massive benefit. You are cutting a huge amount of cost and risk out because instead of relying on parameter security, uh, you're relying on essentially the asset itself being self-policing.
1: And and you've never had an institution say to you, well, what if somebody hacks the smart contract which governs my entitlement?
3: Um, It's the same risk as you have with a bank being hacked. Um, And I think, uh, yeah, there's always a risk. There are now insurance products uh, like Nexus Mutual that allow you to mitigate some of that uh, kind of uh, risk. Um, And also, you know, we've seen examples where, for instance, um, security protocols and security software used to be proprietary, and now everyone accepts that uh, you use open source, open SSL, for instance, at libraries. Why? Because the amount of people that have studied them uh, is infinitely more than a closed environment. Uh, so the, if, if you're focusing on the technology aspect to enforce the rules, the more eyes you have, which is what you have on a smart contracts, they lower the probability that someone um, will kind of ultimately not find the bug early on. So I believe that longer term, smart contract based open systems are going to be considered the gold standard of security rather than the closed shop uh, protocols where there's just not enough eyes on them. Mm
1: -hmm. Because the people writing these smart contracts are obviously learning from experience, the quality must improve over
3: time. Yeah, yeah, and there are thousands of people reviewing their work and frankly hacking it. It's 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 a ferocious environment where any mistake is pounced on by thousands of super qualified developers. But, you know, after a while, when they iron out the kings, uh, the quality is infinitely better.
1: But one reason people like big fat global custodian banks was because if something did go wrong, if their entitlement was lost or a corporate action was missed or something, that big fat bank would make them whole
3: and you have you still have insurance to back you up on this one yeah i mean people are solving the same problems just in different ways kind of um it's same in the end you are paying increased fees to a traditional custodian because it effectively puts its balance sheet at risk precisely for that but if you really think about it that's just another form of insurance and it might be expensive for it one way or another <laughs> yeah you'll pay for it one way or another <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. it might be more expensive than insurance is what i was thinking um yeah. just before i let you go um just on a technical side of custody what, what does it mean to safe keep the keys are we talking locking it in the in the in a, a cold wallet and disconnecting the internet are we talking multi-sig are we talking multi-party computation we're we talking all of the above
3: um usually a combination of most of those scenarios the key key thing to remember is that um, you know, crypto- uh, the whole uh, space here came out of peer-to-peer. So the idea was that you have an individual. The individual has the private key, um, and therefore, kind of any transactions must uh, be signed with the private key. As soon as you get institutional, um, you now have the problem of how do you share safely those keys, but have enough control, and that's the problems we solve for. Yeah. Because once you've shared the key with someone, you can't unshare it. So imagine, you know, the CTO leaves the company and he knows the private key. You now need to move all your assets off the private key to a new one that the CTO doesn't know about before he steals or she steals the funds. So uh, kind of the trick there is, of course, is Uh, kind of keeping the keys generated and used in a safe manner and then making sure that any transactions that are performed uh, with those keys are done with appropriate controls, whether those are business controls like multi-signature, which is really an approval flow, uh, through to kind of compliance checks on transactions for suspicious activity. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of overlap with the old world, but the mechanics of what you do uh, for custody and crypto is very different traditional
0: um, assets. Uh, yeah, Dominic. Dominic, just to add to that, I mean, I think I think the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of um, you know most institutional investors, particularly if they're fiduciaries in a regulated jurisdiction, you know, having control of the keys is is like self custody, right? So there is an actual necessity uh, for institutions to use a, a neutral third party custodian. To to protect the assets, and so I think that's a, you know, a lot of a lot of times people ask us about so, a certain solutions, um, you know, that that really ultimately, de- depending on how you use them, you can use some of those wallet solutions like a Fireblocks to be a backstop for a custody business where you're running a custody business and you're a neutral custodian using that technology. If you use it directly to interact with your counterparties, you're really a self, you're really doing self custody. And that's, and that's a, a point that's often lost on people, yeah. right? That's not suitable for a very, very large swath, if not the majority of institutional investors.
1: Now, we, we've had a, a question on, on this, um, one of the topics we were talking about a while ago here from Lee Sager. He says, um, uh, would you agree that the decentralized finance protocols have the added risk of the Dow governance organization altering the protocol in ways that the investors never contemplated?
3: Um, There is no straightforward answer to that, uh, because again, the answer depends. But there are certain uh, protocols out there that um, have a large degree of upgradability, subject to uh, effectively third parties approving upgrades of those smart contracts. Uh, and the smart contracts think of it as your shareholder agreement <laughs> equivalent yeah so it's good to have ability to upgrade those things change but then the risk is uh, transferred from code to who's allowed under what circumstances to change that code and mm-hmm. if that code that's been changed is kosher after the change so uh, kind of To be honest, it's a necessary evil of any environment that changes. Uh, But yes, you absolutely then need to have very good governance. And that's why a lot of protocols will have what's called state governance. Mm -hmm. And state governance just means that whoever's proposing changes and whoever's approving the changes tends to be a large holder of the token. And then if they allow the uh, change to happen, that's ultimately detrimental. Uh, they are the ones punishing themselves, because the value of the protocol disappears, therefore the value of the token disappears, and therefore effectively the value that they've created up to that point also disappears. So there is a uh, incentivization loopback process to guarantee that, frankly, the people who are uh, the most skin in the game uh, are most incentivized to get it right.
1: And do we have the equivalent of shareholder agreements? It sounds like um, Lee has identified a a real risk here, but it's one which might be familiar from traditional markets. Do you have, you touched on regulation, do you have the documentation to argue? Yeah, it's
3: called code. The documentation is code. This is what people are trying to kind of get their head around. But in reality, it's code. Uh, Read the code, that's your agreement.
1: Code is law.
3: To some extent, yes, although we know that's not necessarily always true, uh, but just like any agreement, contractual agreement has a lot of wiggle room. We all know that it exists and can be used when necessary. Uh-huh. Uh, there will always be overriding factors you know, above smart contracts, but the code gives you very good and a very precise basis to start off on. Could we
1: touch on, on um... Oh, uh, Lee says, thank you for asking my question. You've got a follow-up actually. Uh, but staking control, that leaves open the possibility of a conflict of interest. I think you kind of dealt with that, Alex, by saying that the, the conflict is resolved by the, the largest owner uh, has no incentive to, to create that problem. I don't know if you want to add to that. Um,
3: There's always residual risk. Yeah, yeah so. and,
1: and insider trading, he says, yeah. I think he's identified a real risk there. Somebody else says the code has bugs. But mm-hmm. we we were talking about that particularly related to smart contracts which are not contracts legally speaking as we know, but uh, that's a that's a point that I I guess you guys would answer that, that that that's the bugs are being gradually driven out by actually by hackers trying to hack smart contracts and indeed by smart contracts getting audited and so on. So they're improving but Somebody but I guess
3: yeah. just just one point on this one, and I've, uh, when I used to run innovation labs and banks, there is no such thing as a definitive contract. The contract is a summary <clears throat> of many different verbal and non-verbal written and non-written uh, set of agreements. And therefore, the smart contract code can be, and has been, in a number of legal cases, seen as part of the contributing body of evidence to particular uh, kind of settlement, as much as any other written or verbal form of agreement. So it's not the sole contract, but it can contribute to the body of evidence when arguing a case in court.
1: Has yeah. that risk, of somebody else is asking here, 51% of tax, has that risk gone away or mutated in some way?
3: Nope, still there.
1: And how big is it? How, what, what do you say to institutional investors? I'm very worried about 51% of tax.
3: It's roughly about 51%. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: now, we were going we to touch on, uh, on settlements. Um, just very quickly, um, uh, Rosario, this is probably your area of interest, the, the atomic settlement now. If i've understood it correctly atomic means pre-funded accounts I mean, you have this stuff has to be there otherwise it can't happen is that right
0: uh well uh, well actually we started out with uh pre-funded accounts right so you have you have assets that both counterparties have at a custodian that are essentially tokenized onto a custodial layer two blockchain uh ledger which is part of the overall Basonic network um, and you, the, 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 it's, not, it's not just atomic settlement, it's really what happens is, is the assets that are on those custodial ledgers are cryptographically provably there. Uh, they're read into things like our execution pipeline. So when you get into real-time pre-trade risk, it's essentially reading the UTXO set of the client off the custodial ledger uh, to know whether or not they have the assets to do the trade. When you get into uh, through pre-trade risk, you get into the matching engine, When you have a trade match uh, or an order match, you end up with execution that's actually happening on chain as a truly atomic transaction where you're concurrently changing the ownership of the two assets uh, in real time in literally milliseconds on the custodial blockchain ledgers, that layer two ledger. And then what happens is, I mean, it's a a bit nuanced, but what's really happening there is it's still a peer-to-peer trade that essentially self-clears and settles by virtue of the technology the custodians, and neither the custodians nor Bosonic are novating any trades, taking any balance sheet risk. Uh, the custodian, uh, like the function that Trustology performs, is essentially doing the net settlement movements uh, periodically based on all of that that activity that's happening on the custodial blockchain ledgers. Um, and uh, I think uh, I think your um, uh, you had an original another part of that question. I, I missed the first uh, the other half of it.
1: Uh, no i asked solely about pre-funding i'm I'm just wondering if the if the is the is the process exactly the same for the collateralization of of a transaction as well the bit that replaces the need for a for a prime broker is it exactly the same um process and technology you're using whether it's a exchange of value or um a collateral transaction
0: yeah well let me let me let me back into that by by first saying so we were talking about pre-funding right so so yes today it's it's We we can let people trade on bilateral credit and and enforce credit limits, but we're adding um, a lending marketplace. And this is where it gets pretty interesting because that lending marketplace lets borrowers and lenders maintain their collateral in their own accounts at custodians. And instead of transferring collateral to the lender and transferring coin to the borrower uh, and then doing borrows is essentially then a repo transaction that happens on the layer two custodial blockchain ledger. And what that allows for is it allows for people to trade on the full spectrum, fully funded to fully on credit because they can effectively repo in assets intraday to finance leverage and margin positions. Uh, And and so that gives you the ability to support all those asymmetries, right? You can have a market maker that typically trades solely on credit. They can now uh, face people that are not able to take credit risk to that counterparty by essentially repoing in intraday the assets to be fully funded and have a legal change of title to the assets on the custodial blockchain ledger to be fully funded against that counterparty. And of course, what's happening in that context that they're shifting the credit risk to those willing lenders, the beauty of approaching it with all of the assets at neutral custodians on these custodial blockchain ledgers is that you can essentially frictionlessly crowdsource effectively unlimited balance sheet. So anybody that is holding assets at any of these custodians can can ultimately uh, come in and price these risks, price people effectively for uh, intraday credit and and margin, and that gives you the ability to then support this um, same transaction flow uh, where you're where you're not strictly uh, participating in a fully funded capacity, and and in the prime brokerage um, context, you know you, what's all that's happening is is the bank is using their balance sheet to finance your leverage right so in the fx space your typical high frequency trading shop might have 30 to 1 uh, leverage relative to the assets they're holding at the prime broker and they then go out and trade on credit lines of the bank they literally legally and financially trade in the name of the bank when they transact with their counterparty and and that's that's that credit intermediation piece right so in in a in a in our uh, technology stack, the way this infrastructure is, is implemented, that atomic exchange of assets, whether it's your assets or you've repoed in the assets, the two counterparties to the trade are effectively completely covered and it, and it gives you an alternative to that credit intermediation you normally get from the bank with big bank balance sheet.
1: Mm-hmm. And the prime broker's balance sheet obviously has limited capacity. Uh, so. Were- yeah
0: and they're and they're de-risk i mean even in plain vanilla assets like fx uh which is which is uh uh you know quite uh quite uh calm compared to the crypto markets uh the, the big tier one banks are sort of de-risking there's capital costs around those credit lines and those allocations so uh so i think it's actually going to be quite hard for uh i think it'll be quite a while before we see a big bank come in and actually fully prime broke the digital asset space so in the meantime we need an alternative there's got to be a way for all of these counterparties to face each other without that uh, counterparty credit settlement risk.
1: Do you think, just for an institutional investor listening to this and looking, searching for parallels to the, the traditional world he's familiar with, would you liken what you're doing on the collateral side to what Deutsche Börse is doing with HQLAX? In other words, there's all this collateral lying around in these, in these custody accounts. And they're trying to make it available, more readily available where it's needed. Do you see a parallel to that?
0: I'm not specifically familiar with what they're with what they're doing with that with that product or platform, but uh, from Alex's nodding, it sounds like sounds like some some similarities there.
1: Well, they're, they're digitizing, they're tokenizing, I suppose uh, assets in custody so that they can be used in in repo and stock loan transactions. Alex, you're familiar with it
3: to some extent. Like we we had <clears throat> tokenization used to be called depository receipts, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, to some extent and been used for a long time. Uh, the the utility here is the uh, kind of the common distributed ledger that binds all of these entities together. Yeah, in the old world, you had each exchange, and if you wanted to dual list, it was a nightmare, and then you had to have CompuShare and others to move all those uh, kind of tokens around. Uh, we now have effectively a global ledger, yeah, that everyone's comfortable with. And that removes so much pain because I'm not having to do listed and so on. Mm. Assuming using one blockchain, because now we have multiple blockchains, which means potentially cross listing across multiple blockchains, which in itself is a technical problem. Oh. Uh, but I guess kind of, um, look, all these things have been done to some extent in a centralized world. The key here is the 24 seven global infrastructure. And then, what we're seeing here is this massive ecosystem of highly integrated financial services. Yeah. Uh, otherwise known as DeFi and CeFi kind of merging in together because as soon as I issue a token, uh, whether it's a security token, whether it's non-fungible tokens representing art or non-fungible token representing a legal agreement like a bond, people think of NFTs right now as a uh, art and crypto kitties, but in reality, I believe the vast majority of NFTs going forward will be uh, kind of commercial agreements and contracts uh, that are non fungible. All those assets become immediately available for uh, kind of collateralization, um, trading, uh, hedging through the ecosystem of kind of highly inter- integrated solutions, DeFi, CFI together. That's the power of it. Yeah. And I think until people it's easy. I have talked to a lot of people coming from the institutional side and they have all this preconceptions about what DeFi feels like it, and then they actually try it and they go, Oh shit, this is so much better. <laughs> and to be honest, you know, I I would encourage everyone to just freaking try it because if you just talk about it, you'll never get it. You have to try it out. Um, and then you'll see the, the delta. I, I don't know about kind of Ros- Rosario or Lars views, but I would thoroughly encourage stop listening to us try it out for yourself and then listen again to us and then I think it'll make a lot more sense.
1: Uh, I'm aware of at least one organization trying to uh, put depository receipts onto a blockchain. So <laughs> your, your dream may, may come true in one sense. Um, I, I'm yeah, glad yeah. you mentioned d because I'd like to bring Lars in at this point. Um, uh, you know, Just try it is is um, Alex's ad- ad- advice. Um, and of course, institutional investors are looking at Uh, what's going on in DeFi, they're looking at, you know, yield farming, uh, looking to capture yield uh, for very obvious reasons. They're not getting much in, in the traditional asset classes. So should they just do it? Just try it. Uh, I think
2: uh, I think that's a difficult sell. Uh, maybe I should try that in my pitch tomorrow. I'll try and <laughs> make five cold calls and I just try it, you know, for the sake of it. Okay. So I think uh, there's of course been a number of uh, reports. Uh, I actually just read a report this morning from from Crypto Valley and 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 still, uh, you know, what are the barriers to institutional adoption? Uh, still regulation counterparty risk and safety of funds, you know, they remain the three uh, main points. uh, And I think I I read the same in a fidelity survey last year. So if if, and of course, I think we we collectively need to to address this. uh, And um, I don't think it's uh, amongst the clients that i talk to at least where uh, the just try it uh, will, will work I, I wish actually alex but i <laughs> so maybe you can say we try harder um but i, I think you know we need to address the concerns uh, that these institutions have uh, we work on the regulated framework three of us actually uh, so we we are you know regulated by nature and we're also on the new uh, fca crypto asset register uh, we don't do uh, self-custody that, that both Rosari and Alex they uh, addressed uh, a while ago. I, I just think uh, that, that wouldn't work, it wouldn't fly. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, counterparty risk, well, I, I guess that, that's the whole part. That's what we need to eliminate in, in this uh, brave new world in, in so many ways. Uh, I think we are we're only scratching the surface of, of where we're heading. And uh, I'm by no means as, as technical as Alex. That's why I work with, with people like Alex. Um, you know, trying to, to build some, some institutional rails for, 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 for the new uh, world. And, and I see so many similarities and so many ways. I also come from the FX world as Rosario. And of course, you know it was a good time, uh, we made good money, uh, but we also know uh, where and and how it's inefficient, and I uh, in, there's so many ways where uh, uh, the the crypto and uh, digital can can essentially address that, and I think we're only seeing the beginning, uh, and I'm not talking about Bitcoin in hundred thousand or two hundred thousand because I don't uh, really care about that, it's more that that uh DeFi and, and tokenization of, of so many things uh yeah non-fungible all these uh, fine buzzwords but uh, in very in a, a low practical way uh you know peer-to-peer uh trading uh that that that's possible in in in, uh, in so many ways technically why why not you know move ahead with it why not try and and uh, Make the financial service system more more efficient, and I think we we all three are addressing it, because in in so many ways, if we're honest, the crypto trading is still very very inefficient, you know, uh, super inefficient. So we we I spent 20 years in FX, uh, uh, you know, where we could uh, execute and do the whole, full li- trade life cycle in, in milliseconds, and then it made. Went to microseconds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm not saying we, we need to go there anytime soon, uh, but uh, we are gradually. All three of us are, of course, trying to address and and make a business around the inefficiencies in in crypto. Uh, we're trying to address the concerns. You know, we we regulated, uh, we're credible, uh, and and uh, you know we we we're, we're not counterparties to to the trading. So, I at least see that that's the 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 purpose and the mission. This is this is actually
1: a good point to talk about why why the three of you are working together. But just before we do that, um, Alex, as a your your um, joke or riposte about the risk of a 51% attack is 51%, our, our attendees come back as a 51% plus China. So the risk is actually bigger than than 51%. Um, but before we which is a good point I guess but before we um, uh, 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 start to to talk about the issues more generally perhaps i could ask each of the three of you to explain why it makes sense for you to to work together if you can just very briefly in your own words describe why you thought it made sense to join forces with your two counterparts here yeah, and what why that is you know what are the benefits of doing that for institutional investors as as briefly as you can and perhaps um Lars has touched on this already perhaps i could start with you rosario to give us you know why does this deal makes a for you and b for your is potentially institutional clients.
0: Yeah, well, it makes it makes great sense for for us and our clients because uh, Lars represents a, a source of, of aggregated liquidity um, that uh, we can basically make available to trade by anybody on our network that has assets at a custodian like Trustology. And so, uh, so the whole the whole idea here is is that it, to think about what we do very much like people think about prime brokerage. It's really about. Uh, freedom of choice and being able to have effectively direct market access and the ability to aggregate uh, any number of liquidity sources and trade them all tr- truly without counterparty credit or settlement risk from your own account at a custodian and 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 so we're just the technology layer that facilitates that we're very much dependent on both of these other parts of the equation both the the, the good deep liquidity that we get from from GCX and and also from a neutral custodian like like Trustology to hold those assets on behalf of the clients, and and I think w- one of the things that um, you know is 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 really important uh, is, is just the fact that we're totally custodian agnostic. So p- institutional investors, they all have different sort of lenses they're looking through. They they want to have freedom of choice of so how they custody their assets. Uh, you know they want to have freedom of choice of so who you know what liquidity they're facing, and they certainly don't want to be have the pain point directly of, of, of holding assets at a bunch of retail exchanges and setting credit lines up with a bunch of market makers and then having to aggregate all that liquidity together. uh, You know, that's just a, maybe a bridge too far, I think, for a lot of the, for a lot of the institutions. So hopefully uh, together we're able to sort of deliver one nice neat package where they can uh, access uh, all the liquidity they like uh, from the comfort and safety of their own custody account.
1: You're, you're custodian agnostic, Rosario, but you're working with, with Trustology. What's the additional benefit of doing that
0: for the client? Uh, well, well, well it ha- again, so sort of the, the lenses I was talking about, the different institutional investors look through, uh, some of those are related to regulatory uh, matters. Some of them are jurisdictional matters. So it's so Trustology is the first uh, custodian we have that's FCA regulated and, and based in the UK and is obviously a, a natural fit for uh folks that are not uh don't want to place assets into custody at some of our other custodians that might be in the united states or out in in hong kong
1: Hmm. alex um you've heard rosari talk about you know liquidity of assets in custody um what's what's how would you describe the benefits of this tripartite alliance to an institutional investor
3: of course yeah there is a fundamental mismatch between the need to trade at high velocity very frequently and the blockchain's ability to support that. Ethereum is 15 transactions per second throughput uh, with a latency of about 20 seconds at best, yeah? So if you wanted to trade at that speed, uh, most of us will be out of a job. (laughs) Blockchain is even worse. It's, uh, the latency is 10 minutes. Uh, So we wanna trade a lot faster than we can settle. It's an age old problem you know, T plus four settlement uh, versus the trading environment. Uh, so in order for folks to trade, they need something like Bosonic to allow them to trade it faster, essentially than the speed that is native to blockchain. It's a simple law of physics or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Uh, but then, of course, as soon as you're starting to trade off-chain, you run the risk of uh, kind of party not settling properly with you. This is age old risk as well. And this is what we provide. We act as a settlement agent um, by initially escrowing assets in our custody uh, and therefore making sure that what's tokenized on Bosonic equals the actual assets in escrow. And then we fulfill settlement and redemption uh, requests, always making sure that if they do, there is no in, uh, inflated creation of money uh, on Bosonic or any other system and that we have a nicely cleared, uh, settled transaction. So uh, kind of, we are part of the value chain and something like Bosonic is absolutely mandatory right now. If you want to trade faster than uh, 15 transactions per second, it's, it's a simple fact. I think, you know, longer term, we will see blockchain speeding up. This will consistently change. Um, and I'm sure the Bisonic network will it kind of evolve as well, you know, uh, to match for that. So this is a constantly changing landscape. But right now, something like Bisonic is just has to be done um, to solve for the problem of the speed of the blockchain.
1: And are you doing net settlement? Are you are you the CLS of the cryptocurrency markets?
3: Uh, getting it all down mm-hmm.
1: is obviously a huge benefit.
3: Yeah, we don't net it out. It's actually what Bosonic does. Bosonic calculates the netted position, and we simply receive the settlement instruction uh, for the funds in our escrow, and then we execute the transfers. And Rosario,
1: is the netting where the capital savings come from, or is it the collateralization, or both?
0: I mean it's 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 all of the above, right? I mean the, the, the idea here is trade everything you want from from that one account, right? So you have you have you know obviously a lot of capital, a lot more capital efficiency there. You also have what's effectively what's going on in the background is sort of real-time multilateral netting. And so what 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 Alex actually sees on the operational side there is, is you know, he can take it in real time through an API or he can use a front end that we that we deliver that lets him see all of the net settlement amounts due at any point in time between any all of the counterparties. Uh, And so when somebody wants to redeem or or based on other aspects of of the client SLAs, uh, the custodian can process those net settlement movements based on uh, that cryptographically provable audit trail um, that, that we're presenting by virtue of all of these transactions actually happening on a layer two blockchain network at the custodial level so that's uh you know so you get you get a lot of gains and 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 obviously the speed is one of them there's also a lot of talk right now around layer 2 solutions just in terms of eliminating having every transaction hit the ledger not just from a speed perspective but from a transaction cost perspective so you al- you also have you know kind of just very periodic uh, you know when 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 trustology processes net settlement movements those movements obviously hit the layer 1 public ledgers But that's a tiny, tiny fraction of the actual overall all transaction volume, uh, you know, in a system like this. So there's there's huge gains across the board.
1: Thanks, uh, Rosario. Now we have a question specifically for you, Alex, from Lee Sager. Do you hold all of the crypto in a common wallet with your terms and conditions, providing that you hold the crypto on trust for the client? Or do you do it another way?
3: So So we Sure, yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah, I mean, look, this is all uh, new stuff and everyone's experimenting with it. The way we do this is we create a private key for each one of our customers to be more precise, as many private keys as you want to. Uh, so it's probably slightly more akin to the fact that to a uh, account operator model in the sense that we don't have omnibus accounts. Uh, where funds are commingled and therefore esten- essentially on our books. The way we view it is, we create the private keys. From those private keys, you can generate an infinite number of um, addresses. Um, this could be used in, you know, some of our clients are brokers. They will create an address per depositor. Some payment providers will create an address per payment. Yeah, it's very cheap to create the you know, kind of addresses. Uh, to reconcile um, whether it's deposits, whether it's payments, and so on. Um, And therefore, what we're really doing is is custodying those keys, and then using those keys, you can have a look at all your assets. And it's all always segregated. So you can always, always independently monitor what we do through independent blockchain explorers. So we can prove graphically to you, we're not rehypothecating your uh, assets we're not uh, in any way lending or doing anything with them unless you ask us to and the really interesting thing we're emerging right now is this unbundling of the bank yeah because uh, people say well how can i earn yield with you guys and they're like well you don't need to take counterparty risk on us as a custodian in terms of credit risk but if you want to earn yield and assets in our custody just use DeFi protocols like ave compound etc to earn yield so essentially we've unbundled uh, the keeping stuff safe and the bit around earning interest by uh, kind of segregating it across different service providers and that brings incredible utility uh, to any assets that are stored with us because you don't have to take the package of security and credit risk you can unbundle those two and get the best uh, of both worlds in an open architecture.
1: And those deposits in, in DeFi instruments are even better, are collateralized?
3: Um, depends, yes. Yeah. So some are collateralized uh, at 150%. Uh, in fact, most collateralization right now uh, on DeFi is at about 150% because it's anonymous, you don't know the counterparty and you also are faced kind of building in the market risk. And that's why a lot of people rule of thumb about 150%. What we're seeing is an emergence of lending, uh, like Rosario was saying, and there's different models for that. But one of the unique positions for a custodian like us is essentially ability to dereference an anonymous address or sets of addresses uh, to a particular Uh, So what we can do is we can present, on on permission, the netted portfolio risk, and therefore, plus essentially the identity, and given those two, we can start driving under collateralized lending, and we're running a number of proof points around that space, Um, because with us, we can tell you who (laughs) the borrower is, all the assets they have and we can prove those assets and because we can control the transaction flow, we can create a walled garden across those assets and therefore uh, a lender is safe in the knowledge that they can lend against a portfolio uh, to a high degree of reasonable assurance. So I think this is really exciting where I think custodians will have a unique position where we can start attacking the uh, under collateralized uh, lending value propositions
1: well it sounds it sounds good you've got a a, an account which is not an omnibus account it's a it's a segregated account you've got capital savings you've got um collateralized risk you've got counterparty credit risk dealt with you've got you haven't got to pay a uh, for a prime broker's balance sheet um and this is all created by the alliance of of your of your three organizations now i'm i'm wondering, we've got about 10 minutes to go now. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about where this is all going to, to end up. Could we talk a bit about the type of firms we see becoming active? Um, and I'm talking here really of traditional firms as opposed to, um, to firms that have been in the crypto market for some time. And more specifically, are we seeing um, high frequency traders come into this sector yet? Or is it still too slow and too expensive in terms of infrastructure for that to happen? is the connectivity simply not there who are we seeing come is my is my question to take advantage of what's going on in these markets well last one for you i think
2: Enough. Well, uh, I definitely see some high-frequency guys entering because uh, it's it's like you know almost a candy store, uh, you know, the, the crypto market because it's it's so latent and and so inefficient uh, that you can do arbitrage that uh, you know we we haven't seen in FX for for as long as I remember. Uh, so I think they're already there, and I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, if we look at at what I would call the biggest market makers I can't I've signed so many NDAs, so I can't actually mention their names but uh, they are also uh, active in the uh, uh, traditional uh, world or they they come from the traditional world uh, I think we can say that uh, there's, there's a bunch of Goldman Sachs guys that have gone in different directions I, I guess uh, it was a bad bonus season and then they uh you know set up whatever uh so so i I think you can see almost who's who uh in 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 a lot of crypto market makers from goldman and morgan uh, and and elsewhere so i i definitely think uh, we are uh, seeing them already on the uh, on the client side uh, maybe less so uh, because a a lot of these guys uh, even the big makers, they, they still, you know, cloud hosted. So it's not like we, it, it is, we're still not talking, you know, uh, micro cent, uh, microsecond uh, co location and stuff, because that's not relevant at all. Uh, but still ample uh, arbit- arbitrage opportunities. But then the arbitrage opportunities of course, are also restricted by uh, the transfer costs. And, and you know, again, the, the lack of, of, of central clearer. And I think that's what Rosario, of course, is, is trying to address. Um what what comes next uh, when we talk about crypto today uh, it's it's primarily around exchange tokens um but really i personally uh, and i'm not an evangelist all of a sudden but i i do think that the next wave with with uh, security tokens uh, and, and your know, tokenization in general uh, is, is much is much more interesting actually in, in so many ways because then, then that's where again we will see uh, the uh, the efficiencies uh, and we sit here, you know, uh, kind of in, in the Western world and, you know, we all uh, from banks, et cetera. Really, uh, the use case for, for uh, blockchain and, and uh, security tokens, et cetera, is, is more in, in the emerging markets, if we're honest. You know, I, I can transfer dollars uh, in, in a second to Rosario and, and Sterling to, to Alex. So, uh, you know, that, it's not that inefficient. But the inefficiency. Uh, look, look at the people in Turkey now. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, FX Insider. But uh, you know Erdogan he fired the. the that was a massive uh, change in, in the value of Turkey's lira. Over the weekend, the poor people in in Turkey, if they wanted, they couldn't do anything because they have capital restrictions. So hey, uh, blockchain or, or any digital uh, asset would would be a huge uh benefit for for these people more more than than us really so i think the you know we're only scratching the surface and and the next wave and and the next five to ten years it this smells like like fx 20 years ago uh to me in so many ways uh and i think what what we are doing here and and uh, uh, what what we have have achieved so far is it's really only the beginning of something much much uh, bigger uh, yeah and you know let, let's see uh part of the solution part of the you know the answer is also to an extent uh regulation i know that's a bit uh, counterintuitive but that we, we we trust each other and there's a trusted framework that that we work with um yeah i i, I think the that's a glorious uh, uh, road ahead of us really
1: thanks Lars um, we've got a couple of questions here into our last five minutes now and um, i'd like to pick up before we leave what you had to say about security tokens, but um, we have a question here from Oluwamy Adjaboso. He says, when are we likely to see the commingling of crypto and legacy assets on FI books, and how will the intraday fluctuations be likely managed? So we, the world you were looking forward to there, uh, Lars, in which um, this technology, this way of doing things starts to invade the conventional securities markets. These two things are going to have to live side by side, not just in terms of infrastructure in terms of trading houses, but actually in terms of how these things appear on the books of of financial institutions. Um, You're nodding, Alex, which I hope means you have something, um, a sensible answer to Oleemi's question.
3: Um, I guess the the first movement will be a sub custodian arrangement. It will be extremely inefficient because uh all the big custodians are not going to be replacing their uh, general ledgers so there'll be a requirement to synchronize the decentralized ledger with a centralized ledger um i would guess probably through a bunch of swift messages yeah so there's going to be uh, kind of really ugly hacks <laughs> to start with um and then of course the issues around accounting you know uh how do you treat bitcoin are you treating that as a commodity? Are you treating that as uh, as money? And some of those questions, especially in the US, are still not fully resolved uh, because different regulators consider them as, as both in some cases, which is quite unique. So there are some accounting challenges. Um, and then of course, kind of, how do you treat with counterparties? Yeah, especially with DeFi. We're gonna see huge problems around how do you treat a, decentralized liquidity pool. Now, interestingly, we're seeing a couple of things. So for instance, in, I think that's Constant, they've, they've now put legislation forward to recognize a decentralized autonomous organization, which is really just another word for a smart contract as a legal entity in its own right. Once we have that legal framework, it makes it a lot easier because you can start looking at AML risk Counterparty party risk of a smart contract, like you do with any company. So I think that's gonna resolve a lot of issues there. We also had some clarification around legal ownership based on private keys. The Switzerland recently introduced legislation that basically said ownership of the private key does actually equate to ownership of an asset, which again was legally a blank spot. Um, but that then confirms, at least in Switzerland, Uh, that if you go to court and you can present the private key, you can prove in case of dispute that you own that asset as a result of that. So I think we are starting to move towards uh, legal recognition of ownership of private keys equals ownership of assets, and then uh, legal recognition of decentralized autonomous organizations as yet another form of a SPV effectively. Um, So that helps. And then the question is accounting for sometimes highly, highly complex scenarios. You know, we're seeing interest-bearing tokens in DeFi right now that are effectively made up of collateralized Ether in a a CDP, uh, which then was lent out to Compound, uh, which in itself was then used as a hedging product and then sold uh, on a market. Try accounting for that. So, (laughs) uh, kind of, I think that is going to be blowing some people's minds in terms of how you account for, you know, PL and all that kind of stuff um, on chain. So, I think there is, kind of, to echo Lars, we now have this amazing ability to apply the full weight of financial capabilities that we got used to with assets like securities and cash. But now we're going to have this massive veracity of different assets from digital art uh, potentially being collateralized and uh, the full weight of financial services being applied to that. Um, but then how do you count for that? So I think it will take time. We'll, people will go in with the more simple instruments like ETH, BTC, then some more well understood uh, kind of other tokens. And then we'll start looking at the complexities of accounting for uh, the liquidity pools which to me is the more exciting aspect because you now have set protocol and a bunch of other capabilities that are pooled assets of variable different risk, fungible, non-fungible tokens. Well, um, we'll, but but it, it will take time.
1: Yeah, and we're, sadly we're out of time now, but we'll, we'll, I'd like to round this off with with some a, a final question about, about security tokens. But before we do that, um, a, a Alex, perhaps you could just answer this question from Alex Powell. Koine found crypto custody too hard to get off the ground? Why will you be different?
3: Um, I think it is a tough business. I think we, you know, look, I'm a technologist and we always took it from a technology point of view, yeah? And I think um, we've seen some competitors who took it very much from a uh, kind of, here's the old school of how we did it before and therefore we just apply that to uh, kind of the new world. And I think what we've tried to do, was to deconstruct and said, look, there are fun- new fundamentals and we have to build a solution that respects the new fundamentals, but doesn't forget to address the needs of customers coming into that market. And it's really, really tricky to get that balance right. But I think blockchain is very much a techie uh, kind of uh, bottom up experience. So if you, if you ignore the tech, I think you will fail. But equally, if you ignore the business side of it, you will also fail. And perhaps sometimes people won't be able to strike that correct balance all the time.
0: Yeah. And I think just to, just to add to that, and I think this is a really important point, you know, and, you, and when you're, if you're out looking for a custodian, I, think, I don't think you want custodians. I mean, the custodians that are that, uh, in the space are quite small. Uh, even despite some of the cap raises that we're that we're reading about with some of them. I, I don't think the custodians can build everything themselves and be an island. And, and, and that means, you know, be careful, you know, I'm not sure custodians should be building out, you know, all of the trading kit and, you know, becoming a venue and becoming a principal to the transactions and the whole nine yards and trying to use their balance sheet. Uh, to give people leverage and I mean you see this stuff happening across different custodians I think I don't think anybody but the traditional custodians have the balance sheet big enough to sort of play that game so I think that's another uh, thing to be careful about because you obviously you want to have a custodian that's uh, that's solving their particular piece and uh, going to be around for the long term long term.
2: I totally yeah. agree with you, Zari, because in the traditional world, we, we had Chinese walls and, you know, fines for breaching the Chinese walls. and, and But but again, we see so many mistakes uh, over again that we've done in traditional finance now happening in, in crypto. But that's a very, very good point. You know, custodians wanting to do trading, wanting to do, uh, you know, money supermarket. And we know it will end in tears and, you know, conflict of interest. Uh, the way i i was taught conflict of interest you know if there's a conflict of interest you either deal with it or get rid of it and the best way is to get rid of it and and they're, they're not everyone is dealing with the conflict of interest in what i would deem to be an adequate way right now
0: yeah, we'll and, I don't, and, and i don't think that means i just sorry real quickly i don't think to, i don't think that means custodians shouldn't be doing things like staking and tapping into DeFi on behalf of customer requests what I mean is, you know, the, the rest of the infrastructure, right? Because that's a very sort of crypto-native thing that dovetails really nicely with somebody who's holding the private keys on behalf of an institution is to is to put those assets in into different uh, vehicles or or you know via these different protocols. I think that makes a lot of sense. But I think some some of what we see other people doing doesn't make a lot of sense. And uh, we run
1: we run four minutes over, but I'd I'd hate to leave this just just hanging there on that point. So I'd like to just get each of you to give us. A view of the future. You've all spoken very enthusiastically in you know, different ways about where this, what this is evolving towards. You, you know, you've all come from this FX background, but you very clearly see this evolving not just into illiquid asset classes like fine art and and so on, but actually into the, into the conventional securities markets. Alex, you mentioned SWIFT. We had SWIFT on a webinar here a few weeks ago, and they expect the token security token markets to be of equivalent size to the current securities markets within five to ten years. So even SWIFT is is enthusiastic about. The possibilities here. So, just my closing question is: um, for each of you, uh, Rosai, how long do you do we need to wait before we see funds, in particular, as opposed to trading houses, coming into this market? You know, household name funds coming into this market in a major way. How long do you think we need to wait?
0: I mean i think it's i think it's starting to happen now i mean the first the first wave i mean first of all what used to be institutional really meant family office and high net worths i think that has changed in the last four or five months right we now obviously you can see the corporates you can see real institutional uh demand we certainly you know we're in the middle of you know working with traditional wall street firms to to set up full-blown trading desks in crypto on behalf of uh their their internal trading teams and and for execution on behalf of their clients so, that, so it's definitely happening. The demand is there. The demand is, is uh, you know, is is real. And I think um, uh, I don't know if that was you were trying to get specifically to the point of of uh, of security tokens, but I think I think the the first wave that we're seeing is really people that are, you know, in the last few months are people that have been come in, dip their toe in through very white glove kind of services where they go to a big name and they say, "Help me acquire some Bitcoin." Obviously that's gonna that's gonna cascade into sort of the people that are more actively uh, trading these assets that are also traditional funds and fiduciaries. and I think that's I think that's accelerating as of now. I think the securities tokens uh, market is a little bit longer of a tail, but i but I agree with Lars and and I think probably Alex that this is th- this is not a ten year long tail this is this is converging faster than I think people understand uh and i think we're going to see a lot of issuance that happens natively digital uh, and once all of the regulatory and and technology and clearing and settlement stuff all lines up uh there will be you know much lower barriers for people to go that route and obviously they're going to get a lot more efficiency save money get greater reach and and, and realize all the benefits of this sort of new uh this new uh digitized world
1: last are uh, blackrock and capital international and um Janus Henderson bashing down your door already, or must we wait a few years? Uh, n- n- not yet,
2: um, but you, you'd probably be, su- be surprised, uh, I guess, like Rosario, uh, that that we actually have a you know a couple of of I would say, Tier One names that that we work with uh, one way or the other. Uh, I think, of course, also Wall Street Bank. You know, are they are they not uh, active? Uh, so more people are probably uh, dipping their toes than, than you think, uh, but they're not too public about it. I think Standard Chartered have been public about some, some initiatives. Uh, I'm talking
1: about... funds specifically, fund managers, asset managers. The mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, well, uh, again, I think we're bank one side or the other. I think that they, no one that I know are, are super uh, public about what they do. Uh, But I don't think you're talking 10 years. I think you're talking one to two years uh, at most.
1: Right. Wow. Okay. Last word from you, Alex. One to two years or five to seven? (laughs) All the funds are here in a major, you know, en masse.
3: Yeah, I think it's one to two years. And we're going to start to see a lot of, uh, I think the first wave is going to be bigger boys starting to issue a certain amount of assets, uh, whether they're security tokens in securities um, like equity or debt, and I think debt will probably come first. Uh, once debt goes on the chain, and we've seen some examples of that, we all need to be traded. Um, and I think you'll see funds doing that more. So, I think, yeah, one to two years, I'd agree with that.
1: And sadly, I think we must uh, uh draw stumps there. We've run uh, uh, eight minutes over, so that's always a sign that it's been a lively, interesting, fascinating discussion and I hope that everyone listening has enjoyed it as much as, as we have. Um, it remains for me only to thank our panellists, uh, Alex Patner of Trustology, Lars Holst of uh, GCX, and Rosario Ingargiola of Basonic. Uh, thank you again to the audience for your interest, especially for your questions and your comments.